An estimated more than 40% of the world population experiences anxiety, which can get in the way of you being your best self, living your life to the fullest, living your potential, and just your overall well-being. So today I have special guests, James Tripp, Jürgen Rasmussen, of course my wife, Julia, and we're going to get into this and we're going to talk about, each of us, we're going to talk about the two things that have worked best for us in overcoming anxiety, but not necessarily just in our personal lives. We're all coaches here, we're all teachers, we've worked with people uh, who have suffered from anxiety to help them overcome it. So I want to know from each of you, and I'm going to share mine as well, the best techniques you've used to overcome anxiety. All right, let's get into this. So James, let's start with you. Okay. Um, so anxiety like, is, a, is a huge thing, or has been a huge thing for me in a sense, in that that's what got me into NLP. Basically, it's like uh, I noticed you mentioned this. So we're uh, for those of you out there, we're we're in London right now at the UK Hypnosis Convention, and I, I got to say I was a little surprised at your presentation when you said that that was the reason you got into it, and right. then also when you were doing your uh, street hypnosis. I used to watch those videos, and you were saying I was so scared, and I was like, I had no idea yes. that you were you were yeah, actually yeah, yeah. experiencing anxiety, uh, massive anxiety. Yeah, and in, in a sense, part of the reason I was doing that. Yes, I wanted to explore with street hypnosis, hypnosis in general, but it was also about me. I was in a phase of my life where I was kind of recreating myself from the inside out, and I wanted to be living in the world in a different way. Um, so that was part of my process for actually overcoming uh, anxiety. I'm not a fan of that frame overly, but I'm going to use it. Uh, so, you know, a really, really big thing for me. And one of the things I will say is a lot of people who may not have experienced anxiety might not appreciate how truly debilitating it can be. Actually, I would like you to develop on that and explain how does it really feel to have anxiety? Well, that's a really good question, and I think probably it's different for different people. So we use this term, anxiety, as if, well, that's going to be the same thing for everybody. So for me, speaking personally, when um, I used to get these, a lot of it was social anxiety for me. And I had a lot of fear around what people were going to think of me, they were going to judge me, they were going to think I was stupid, they were going to think I was unlikable, all sorts of things. The way that would manifest in me wasn't necessarily like a lot of like, oh my God, oh my God, fear. It would be that like my brain would start to shut down. And I've often said it's almost like, if you can imagine like a dental injection, like Novocaine or something, somebody had injected that into my prefrontal cortex and everything would go, and almost every, the sound would go a bit funny. Um, and people would talk to me and I would be like, oh. And these single monosyllabic words would come out. And I just, and, and the thing is, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because I was so afraid people would think I was stupid and I would become stupid, right? That was the crazy thing about it. So it was just absolutely not serving me. It was getting in the way of my life in so many ways. I was having trouble at work when I worked um, you know, in organizations and things like this. It was difficult to communicate with other people. It wasn't so bad in the evening because I was drunk. That was, <laughs> and that's how I would deal with it. But you know, I actually, I think there's a lot of people that that's how they deal with it, and I don't even think sometimes they know that it's anxiety that's causing right. them to do that. But they know when they drink, they can relax. Yes. And so, and that's a generalized sort of social anxiety, and I think that's why a lot of people drink socially, just right. to relax. And right. I mean, I, I was a very, very heavy drinker, and I don't, I don't actually think I was ever an alcoholic because when I finally sort of stopped drinking, and I used to drink every single day, I never had any problems or any withdrawal or anything like that. But as long as you don't go to meetings, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I just kind of transcended because I didn't need it anymore. Now, so um, I kind of had two distinct phases, I think, in transcending anxiety. And the first of those actually is the phase where people go and they look at my old street hypnosis videos, that kind of thing. I'm in that phase, in that first phase. That phase was managing the anxiety. Right. So the stuff would come up, and I started, and I learned a lot from NLP about this. So I would get like, well, how is this, am I manifesting this? What's the, what are the submodalities on? And I would just start changing submodalities and using tools to, to manage my inner state. So a lot of state management stuff. And this was good stuff because it enabled me to do stuff that I had not been able to do before. It enabled me to stop or, or change this process where my brain would shut down. Right. And there were other things I discovered about my inner experience from paying attention to it that enabled me to go, here's choice points here, I can take this in a different direction. But it was all very much managing stuff that was coming up. 
then around about uh, probably sort of 2012, something like that, I started to get into uh, something that Jürgen's got a lot of familiarity with, this stuff, the three principles stuff, this kind of thing, looking more deeply into how my mind was creating the anxiety in the first place, instead of managing the products of what my mind was creating. Did that give you some space from it, just the fact that you start to say, okay, well, how am I doing this? How is this happening? Did that give you some space from it right there and help manage it? I, I definitely, I think, you know, like this is a thing for me that happened in stages. I do not regret. I'm not like, oh, I was completely on the wrong track with that NLP stuff. It's like, no, 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 no. That was really, really useful stuff. Um, there were some other things as well that really helped me. So I worked with a guy called Steve Chandler. And Steve Chandler is quite a well-known author. He's got a lot of books. And he's a coach. And I had like probably a year's coaching with Steve Chandler. And Steve was a real wizard of reorganizing people's reality. And I had this really interesting experience. Um, I can tell this story right now. I've got like a minute or so to tell it. When my kids were really young, we used to go to this place uh, called, what was it called? It, it was a place where there were like really tall trees and they had all these rope bridges between the trees and slides that would come down. Bewilderwood, that's what it was called in Norfolk in England. And I had a terrible fear of heights as well. Aside from my anxiety stuff, I used to have a really bad fear of heights. I couldn't even go up on a step ladder to change a light bulb without really wow. going to state. NLP was really good for this as well. I couldn't even look at somebody in a high place without really starting to go into a, a state. Um, NLP really helped me with that. So I had these tools to manage it. So I would go with my kids to this place for Wilderwood. We crossed these big rope bridges between these tall trees. And I'd know as I was going up the staircases up these trees, like, right, I'm gonna to have to start doing my state management stuff any moment from now. Right, okay, I'm gonna start reversing the spin on the feelings and this. And I would be able to cross these rope bridges and manage to do it and keep my state. And I was working with Steve Chandler. And I've been working with him for like six or eight months. And honestly, this is just general coaching. Nothing about fear of heights had ever come up any point and we went off for our usual summer trip to Bewilderwood and we're going up this thing and I'm going oh yeah I'm going to need to start doing my state management thing soon I'm going to need to start doing it and we carried on and we not, yeah in a minute and my kids are distracting me and everything and then I suddenly realized it's halfway across the rope bridge and I didn't have to do anything to manage my state and the fear of heights had apparently disappeared and I'm like oh that's weird. I feel absolutely fine and I'm in a high place and that never happens. And I, I was thinking about it a lot afterwards, what happened? Because we never worked with fear of heights, but what Steve did with me is he helped me kind of like get an entirely different sense of myself and who I was. And what my theory is with this is that that fear of heights just didn't fit with how I saw myself in the world anymore. And because it didn't fit, it just hey, you're, Now you're swerving into my lane, the self-concept <laughs> stuff. Right, yes, it was very, <laughs> very like that one. Right, it was a huge, it was totally because the, we had done a lot of it, not the same process, yeah, yeah. but it was working with the level of self-concept. Steve always used to say self-concept is destiny. Right, so that transformation of self-concept, instead of working on the fear and the anxiety, we never touched that. Just the self-concept change meant that that dropped away. So like, I'm a big appreciator of, of the power of self-concept work. So yeah, that was that was kind of my second phase. Then getting into the three principles stuff, and now somebody was saying to me the other just after my talk yesterday, do you have any? So is that the first out? technique? Let's summarize NLP. that if it was. Sorry, no. Okay. So we're still, what, we're still what, leading what, up what to we, Yeah. So I had the NLP phase of managing what I would call the products of uh, maybe Jürgen would talk about it in terms of your thinking. So let's say my thinking is creating stuff for me. What the NLP stuff helped me do was get some distance on that and meet that differently and work with that differently. Uh, but then later on I kind of got into this phase of maybe more self-concept stuff on one level, but also a sort of re-rendering of the kind of nature of reality and experience as well, which uh, helped me really, I just kind of fell out of it all. Somebody was saying to me yesterday, do you still get any anxiety now? And I'm like, I don't think so. I mean, maybe a shadow of a shadow of a shadow of a shadow. And I think if you have but, to think about it that hard, 
there's a good chance you really don't. And if it does, it's probably at such a small level. Yeah, that I, it's I might get some reluctance to do something. Like I might not feel like it. Like if I'm going and presenting, I might go. Oh, I don't feel like it this morning, but it's not a big deal, and I'll just go and yeah. do it anyway. So I want to get you're going to jump in, and uh, I want to go around before we get to yeah. the second one. But uh, how would you summarize that as a technique if you were explaining this All right. to someone how to do it? So if I was going back to the first stuff, let's go for the first stuff because it's the easiest stuff to talk about. For me, like that was very much getting in touch with the quality, well, like what is actually happening. Instead of being caught up in, uh, there's the camera, being caught up in the anxiety, it's like how does it manifest? How is it showing up in my experience and in my body, right? And then at that point, it's like, oh, it's showing up that way. And what choices do I have about this? Right, so there's a, there's a process to how it comes on. People that know NLP will know about stuff like spinning feelings, this kind of thing. So like, for example, that brain numbing thing that I would experience, I could feel that coming on, so I could just kind of reverse it. Or I could feel something coming up in my body and I could just kind of reverse it, you know. And there were some other things I discovered about this. I'll just say this quickly. I used to, in social context, do what the impro theater uh, teacher, Keith Johnston, calls habitual low status behavior, right? I would play low status, and it's a way of going, I mean you no harm, right? And, I, and I, when I realized I did this, what I was able to do is get the kinesthetic of it, how it's represented kinesthetically in me, and feel it and then just adjust it up so I was like more in a one across position and that really helped me in my kind of social interactions as well. It's like really submodalities work in a way, often working in the kinesthetic system. Now, I think a lot of people would say, well, yeah, I know what you're talking about and as it's coming up, but I, I can't do anything about it. But I think the key to that is sort of understanding that it's coming up as a process and then when you can sort of observe it like that yeah then it gives you that space and then yes. once you have that space then you can then you can have more control over that's it. that's really important that space and i think like we were talking in a previous conversation about how nlp was originally called meta mm -hmm. a meta means yeah being able to kind of go up above it and i think that that making the space being able to hold those feelings and sensations as object rather than being subject to them yeah. is a major piece Absolutely. that actually not just is useful in, the, in doing the techniques themselves, it actually gives you a skill that can generalize out into other areas. I used life. to use exactly that, where anxiety and fear is probably just a very nuanced difference between the two, but I, if I would experience fear, that's what, how I would deal with it, but it you know, works the same way with anxiety, of course. Yeah. What about you? What are you asking specifically? First, first technique, whether you've used it in your personal life or you've used it with clients to deal with anxiety. Well, I, I think the first thing is to see that there's no such thing as anxiety. I knew you were going to say right, that. Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes clients come in and they say, you know, we have a terrible relationship. I'll say to them, how are you relating in a terrible way? And they even either start laughing or they kind of get taken back. And I say, look, relationship isn't a thing. Language makes dynamic processes look like things. Mm -hmm. Relationship isn't a thing, it's a process. So how are you relating? So when people say to me, clients say, I have anxiety, I say, no you don't. There's no such thing as anxiety. Now you may be anxietizing, or you may be phobicking. Which puts the person back in control. Not control, I, I don't buy into that one. But, but or they say, you know, I suffer from depression. And say, well, you you may be depressing, or relating to Whatever your you might control. You're they're the actor now, rather than the receiver or just the. So so depending yeah depending upon how they conceptualize, I may emphasize having choice about that or or not. You know, depending upon the client. But but I think the first thing to kind of see is that wait a minute, this isn't a thing. This is actually a process. And once people see that this is kind of something that I'm doing or constructing or a way I'm engaging with experience, that opens up for the possibility that I could engage differently. So that's that, that's kind of the first thing to... to uh, sometimes I task my clients by saying, I'm anxietizing now. And it's such a, it's such a pattern interrupt because, but if you're anxietizing, you can kind of do something different. That, that's kind of the, the, the implication of it. Mm. Um, I, think, I think the second thing is, and I got this from Albert Ellis, 
I'll say to clients, look, if, if you're anxietizing, you're demanding something. You're, you're either demanding something socially about how other people perceive you or how you come across, or you're demanding that you must perform or show up in a particular way. And I think the structure of it very often is, if you demand something, either I must not feel this, or I must not be perceived this way, or I have to be in control, or I have to perform. If you demand that, and you simultaneously are bright enough to know that you don't have that guarantee, then every time the thought comes up, there's going to be a fight-or-flight response. So, so one, thing, one way I've kind of done it with myself and the clients is, whenever you notice that type of response internally, to kind of stop and go, what am I demanding right now? So in, in a social situation, I, I often say, this is interesting too, if, if you ask a client who says, I'm socially anxious, and they say, I, I want to be confident, right? You ask them, what, what's it like to be socially anxious? Meaning, what is it that you're experiencing that you label as anxiety? And they might go, well, you know, my heart's beating, or my, my palms are sweaty, or I'm nauseous, or I have this internal dialogue. People give different responses, right? But, but if you ask someone who seems confident, and I've tried this, you know, what's it like to be confident? They usually can't really give a coherent response. It's not a specific feeling, or it, it, it's not like it's 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 more. I'm 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 just doing my thing. I'm just present. I'm just in life. It's kind of like right? when you drive your car to work right. and you don't even remember getting there because you're so confident. You're you're you're, 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 you're just doing. doing your thing. So, so I, I say to my clients, I say, look, the main difference I think between the the socially anxious person and the quote-unquote confident person is that the socially anxious person is having one or more conversations more. Meaning, the person who's comfortable is just having the conversation. There's just the conversation. The anxious person is having conversations about the conversation, about how they appear and, and how they... So they're just doing more work. In a sense, and and one thing I try to get my clients to see, which I think is largely true, is that if you're socially anxious, you're demanding something of the other person. You're demanding that they perceive you in a particular way, for you to perceive yourself in a particular way, right? So to the extent that you can give another person the freedom, I'll say freedom in quotation marks, because you can't really give them the freedom, but to the extent that you can give someone else the freedom to perceive you, however they perceive you, you're free. So anxiety then becomes a kind of useful signal to go, ah, I'm holding someone hostage in my mind again. I'm, de I'm, I'm, I'm demanding that they perceive me a particular way, and what I try to do with clients, instead of helping them get rid of their anxiety, I do my best to help them cultivate their willingness. Like, how willing are you for the thought that someone thinks that you're boring, for example, to appear? How willing am I to have this beating heart or this perception of myself as awkward? And the more willing someone is to have that experience, the less resistance they tend to have. So I, I, I tend to I tend to kind of work on 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 that level. Um, I'll mention one more thing too, if if that's and when I said there's no such thing as anxiety, the interesting thing is if I ask someone, I'll, I'll say to them, well, anxiety is not a feeling, it's a label, it's a concept. They might say, well, I, I, I feel hopeless, but that's not the concept. The label is referring to something. It's referring to something you're experiencing. What is it that you're experiencing that you're labeling anxiety? One person might say, oh yeah, my heart just starts beating really fast and I get sweaty palms. And I say, that's it? And they go, yeah. So I'll say, so when you feel sweaty palms and beating heart in a particular context, you label that anxiety and they go, right. Another person might go, I just get really dizzy. My test gets tight and I can't breathe. Another person might go, I get this cold chilling feeling suddenly. Like there's overlap. But 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 people pe people basically take uh, 
neutral, and they may be uncomfortable sensations, but they kind of take sensations, and depending upon the context that they're in, they can make different emotional states out of them. So for example, in one particular context, so if someone says, oh yeah, I, my heart starts beating and I get sweaty palms, I'll often have them sprint on the floor in my office for 30 seconds really fast and then have them describe their experience. Mm -hmm. And more often than not, they go, yeah, my heart's beating really fast and I have kind of sweaty palms. I say, right, how anxious are you? I go, not at all. And that's often kind of a, where they realize, mm -hmm. oh, I can have this and not create anxiety around it. Yeah. So I'm curious, what, yeah. if you explained to clients the fact that there is no such thing as, as anxiety and explain the entire thing you mentioned here, yes. did you have clients that just by repositioning that entire thing, they kind of already improved yes. and overcame it? Yes. A lot of what I do is psychoeducation. Just helping people understand the mechanisms, just, just help them. I've had so many people kind of go, huh, now that's, that's kind of strange. And, and something else too, which I, final thing, which I think is very interesting is, people often have this idea that anxiety protects me. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 it's, it's a protective versus, a nice analogy is, if you have virtual reality goggles, <clears throat> turquoise virtual reality goggles, and you go outside, you know, the, the cars and the people and the sky is gonna look turquoise. It looks as if you live in a turquoise world. But it kind of tells you about your goggles. It, it tells you about the goggles you're you're wearing. And I think that's an important distinction to get. This is a mind state. This is a particular. It doesn't necessarily tell me that much about the world, but it tells me a lot about this particular mind state. And I, I remember uh, when my son was born, because. When even with people who say they're anxious, if I ask them, have you ever been in a life-threatening situation? Like someone has a knife to your throat, you lost control over the car. It's not like I'm on the plane and it could crash. It's like you're actually running out of the burning building. Some people do say, yeah, I panicked, I froze, I, I. but very often people say, no, I, I, I was, I was calm, or super focused, or, or my senses. I heard everything. You know, they very seldom report anxiety. Mm. They might report anxiety after the fact when they think about it or when they anticipate. So, so, so to help people see that, wait a minute. In, during times of actual danger, they very seldom have that response. There's something else kicking in. And I remember when my son was born, he had this virus infection, and then he got another one, and that was kind of. I don't know how life-threatening it was, but he was in and out of the hospital with a breathing mask, and it was kind of... And my mother-in-law is a medical doctor, and she's kind of neurotic. She has a tendency to worry and anxietize, and my wife has a tendency to kind of worry and anxietize. And what I would notice is that every time something was actually up with my son, they would just act. They just went to the hospital. But then I would see my mother-in-law kind of with tears and being anxious around my son. I would say to her, I would say, Ellen, you look kind of worried and anxious. And she'd go, yeah. I was like, let me ask you, are you seeing something right now that warrants medical attention? Should we take him to the hospital? Or are you thinking? And she'd go, yeah, I guess I'm thinking. I'd go, great. I'd go back to my book. So I'd be super relaxed. Every time they were worried, I'd use that as my cue that they're not seeing anything. They're just thinking. That's my cue to kind of relax. I'm curious, whenever you mentioned that they can use anxiety as something to protect themselves. So with people that use it as a mechanism to protect, whenever you remove anxiety, do you have to replace it with something else so they still have the protection? Or is it something that can just be removed and it's just empty and it's just gone? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I, looked at, I, I looked at some statistics a few years ago. The 10 most common fears and then the 10 actual causes of death. And the only one that was in both categories was, was fear of viruses and bacteria. This was pre-COVID. And you had tuberculosis and influenza as the eighth leading cause of death. And those were the only ones that kind of correlated. Other than that, there, there was no resemblance between the things that people say that they are anxious about. And, and I sometimes like to use the example, I say, look, 
if you go if you go home and let's say Damon's cooking cooking you know on the stove. Yeah. Let's say it's cold outside, you're freezing. You don't go and put your hands on the stove to warm them up. Yeah. And the reason you don't do that is not because you're anxious. It's not like you see yeah. the stove, you feel anxiety, you move towards the stove, you get really anxious, and hadn't it been for the anxiety, you would have put in your... You, you don't need... You, don't, you just yeah. need the knowledge. Yeah. Or if you have kids and you're by the traffic stop in the green light, like, I don't have anxiety. I know that if I move into the street with my five-year-old son, we're going to get killed or injured. Yeah. But it's not that I have this anxiety response that stops me from walking out into the streets. I'm completely yeah. calm. I just know to not do that. It's almost like basic logic. So, so, so a lot, a lot of the time to me, it's it's about helping people to kind of uncover that they often have these assumptions. That they somehow need to worry to prevent making mistakes, or if I think about this enough, I'll, I'll, I'll solve this. And, and um, I remember when my wife was uh, in a serious car accident. Uh, it was in a coma and stuff like that. And, and various friends would come to the hospital. And but sometimes we would meet friends after the fact that would come up and go, oh, "I've been so worried about you. You've been on my mind all the time." And I'd look at them and go, like, they've never been to the hospital. Like, like the people who were at the hospital, they didn't act that way. Mm. They were just present. And I, and I think for a lot of people, worry and anxiety serves a function of feeling that they're engaged in doing a lot while actually not doing anything yeah, but spinning yeah. their wheels. Yeah, I think actually anxiety, <clears throat> I don't think you need to replace it with anything because I think if anything, anxiety removes you or, or removes your access to resources. What I often say is like, what is a, a resourceless state? If you had a state that was completely resourceless, what is that? Well, I can tell you because I've tried it. I uh, experimented with that and it induced panic in me. And that's why they say don't panic. You know, does one create the other? I'm not sure which one comes first. But if you're experiencing anxiety, rest assured you have lost some access to resources. Yeah. And when you don't have anxiety, you have full, more full access to your resources as you need them. And as a result, you're probably going to make better decisions right. in, a, in a tense situation. Or crisis situation. Yeah. So I'm gonna. My first technique that I want to share is very similar uh, to what you were saying. So I'm gonna kind of piggyback on that. Uh, but before that, I want to say kind of what inspired this uh, podcast and this this topic is because we kept getting uh, questions in our our group coaching group about anxiety, and I was like, my mind kind of went blank on, on answering that. And part of a big part of it was I haven't experienced it in so long. The only anxiety that I've experienced is interesting that what you were saying about it's when you're demanding something that isn't available or you can't control. And the only time I experience anxiety has to do with when we're trying to catch a plane and we're late. <laughs> or where, you know, something where I, I'm late yeah. and I can't speed things up. And then what it, and I like the way you say that. It's like I'm demanding that I be there on time, but I don't have full control of being there on time. That's really, and it's not a major anxiety. It's just sort of like, ah, you know, I, I want to just be there. So I don't really experience anxiety that much anymore, but I absolutely did, especially social anxiety. And for the longest time, I couldn't get up and talk to a group of people in public. And I went to Toastmasters to, to try to you know, tackle that. Um, but one, the, the one thing that I've heard that I think is one of the most useful, and it really fits with what you were saying, is I heard Sam Harris, when he was not in philosophy mode or political mode, he was in neurosciences mode. He said, what goes on neurologically when you're experiencing anxiety is almost exactly the same as when you're experiencing excitement. The only difference is, is where you shift your mind focus. You know, so if you're shifting on focusing on everything that's going to go wrong, well, not only are you going to experience anxiety, you're kind of future pacing yourself to do exactly the thing that you don't want to do, because that's what you're, that's the information you're paying attention to. But if you shift your focus to, well, I'm excited because I get to go get up and talk to all these people, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to, I see myself performing very well, well, that gets even more exciting. So you're, you're sort of take, taking that, that what's happening neurologically and moving it in a different direction. Yeah. How does it work when you're trying to catch a plane and you think you're going to miss it? Are you getting excited? I'm going to miss the flight. I so can't knowing wait. you, knowing you, because she's so positive and optimistic all the time, she would find that exciting. Oh, now we get to tackle a new challenge. How do we find, how do we find a new flight? So yeah, that, that's my main technique. And my other one, I'll just wrap up real quick and then we'll move back to you, James. Um, the boundaries work in self-concept that Steve Andreas teaches, 
I kind of overlooked that. I was really focusing on the, I guess, the 90% of the core of self-concept, but there is that other piece of how much do I sort of own the space around me? And then when someone I don't know steps into that and basically crosses my boundary, how do I feel about that? And do I get, do I feel like, you know, I'm being violated in some way? Yeah. If someone, and so we, we actually do that. We imagine, you know, a stranger is getting closer and closer. And this is a stranger who's not, you know, looking, you know, like they're trying to hurt you or anything like that. It's just how, how, how close will you allow a stranger to get to you before you go, whoa. Mm. And that's how we start to code what is that imaginary boundary that we create around us. And we call it imaginary, but it, you can see how it affects people when you step into their personal space and they don't know you, like, ah, they, they kind of jump. And so it might be imaginary, but we actually feel it and it is anxiety uh, inducing. And when I, when I met her, she was walking down the street downtown, broad daylight, and I wanted to meet her, and I felt like anxiety coming up. Like, and it, it, what's so strange about that is, you know, she was 20 years old, she's this tiny woman, but I'm feeling fight or flight uh, feelings come through me. But I remembered the boundary work, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna drop the boundary entirely. And so I, because I was well acquainted with it, I was able to do that. And then suddenly there was no fear, there was no anxiety, and I just walked right up to her and started talking to her. So I hate to think that if I had not done that, I experienced all this anxiety and I just let her walk past, I wouldn't be married to her to the, you know, today. So we miss those opportunities. And that's, I wanna hammer that home too, is like, well, why are we even talking about this? Anxiety is crippling. You miss so many opportunities when you allow the feelings of anxiety to stop you. Yeah. And for stop, to stop you from taking risk or, and I think a lot of this is driven by uh, self-worth, which I, you know, I talk a lot about, which is a bigger subject than we want to get into right now. But I think a lot of anxiety is people's belief that there's, they have this thing called self-worth, which does not exist. Can't, you can't measure it. And they think that if I go and do this thing and I look stupid or I take this risk and I fail, then somehow that lowers my worth. And it's like, but there's no such thing and it can't be measured. So there should be no anxiety about that. You're still going to be you. You're still going to wake up the next morning and everything's going to be fine. Yeah. 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 So that kind of, that sort of dovetails nicely into, um, I think that we had completely planned all this. Huh? Yeah. The, 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 this, well, you know, I think there's a good chance that there's going to be resonance here because what we're dealing with is something that has a reality to it. You see what I mean? It is built a certain way. It is constructed a certain way. So I think that anyone who's kind of working effectively with anxiety, like the more effectively you work, the more you're likely to be finding your way to the root of it. So one of the things that I often share with clients is that like anxiety, like a frame of play, is like all states have recipes. Like, there's a recipe for everything. Anxiety is a recipe. Right? And um, I often do this little bit with people. I say, you know, I say you're like somebody who is uh, a great, great baker, bake great cakes. I just walked into the kitchen. There's a gorgeous chocolate cake down. You've got an apron on and there's flour on you and everything. And, and I go, this is a great cake. And I go, nothing to do with me. Right? So I kind of like introduced this idea that there's a recipe that they're baking up the cake and then saying they don't, they're not doing it. So I want to get them to see how they're baking the cake and what it's kind of like put together. So like, if I'm dealing with something like social anxiety, I mean, there's lots of ways. I'll use lots of different approaches, different methodologies, different metaphors. That's what I'm trying to say. But they're all kind of pointing in the same direction. Now, one of the things I'll often do, and a bit of business I often do with people around social anxiety, is um, I, I make a guess, and it's an educated guess, and it's almost always right, that they're, what they're really afraid of is some kind of judgment about self. Right? There's something that they fear might come out of that social situation, a judgment by the other person upon them, or a judgment that may make themselves upon themselves. And that's going to be about, like, what if something terrible about me is true? Some, some awful horror about me. And, and for me, I know this myself, one of my big things is what if people think I'm stupid? Because my real fear is what if I am stupid, right? And like people see it, oh my God, that would be awful. Which relates to this thing you're seeing, you know, my self-worth will drop. It will be, it'll be terrible. So one of the things I often do with people, and I've had some really big shifts from this, is I say to the, the client, I say, look, I want you to, you, you can see me right now, I want you to like, I want you to get into the worst thoughts you can possibly think about me. 
right? Just judge me harshly anyway. And really get into the reality of seeing me in the worst possible way you could. What a terrible person. You know, what are the worst things you could think about me? Sometimes I'll, I'll see it. I've worked in Scotland and I, I said this to a guy. I said, you know, really judge me when you dirty English bastard. <laughs> um, but you know, I get them to really judge me. And then I say, okay, so just check that off. And I always do it this way because, you know, I've still got an ego to protect. I say, no, no, no think, think like great things about me. You know, what's the best stuff you can see in me? You can, so really be in that reality of seeing all the best you can in all of this, thinking about it in a good light. And so, so as you went through that experience, do you think anything actually changed about who I am? Right? Nice. And they're like, uh, I go, like, did I actually change? And they're like, well, I guess it's okay. That's good. Because I'm going to do the same thing to you right now. Okay? And then I go and I go, so right now I'm judging you really Just be aware that I'm judging you really harshly. And maybe somebody will squirm a bit there, or maybe they'll be calm. And then I go, now I'm seeing you in a, in a very positive light. I'm seeing the very best of you. Did I change you? You know, and I get this thing going on. So I start to introduce people to the idea that the judgments that they fear so much change nothing about who they are. Right? And I really emphasize this point, change absolutely nothing about who you are. And I'm aware when I deliver this, I'm also working on a level of state because I want to draw them into a state of calm and being able to be with stuff. I'm a big believer in the, I love the phrase, what you cannot be with will not let you be. Whoa, whoa, say that again? What you cannot be with will not let you be. Okay, I, I'm pretty sure I, I right. got it, but can you give me an So what, what I mean by this is if I fear that I might be stupid, the stupid isn't even a thing. It's an idea, it's a concept. It doesn't exist in the world, right? Other than stupid is and stupid does. As, <laughs> I knew you were going to say as, that as like, <laughs> Forrest Gump. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's a concept, it's, a, it's an abstract thing. So it's not like a real thing as such. But if, if every time I think that I might be stupid or I think that somebody else thinks I might be stupid, I get a reaction in my body. One thing I know down well is I'm taking that idea really serious. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing that it's this idea that doesn't really have any substance in it, right? I, I'm falling for it. I'm mistaking a thought for a fact, right? So, so um, I, if I can't be with that, if I can't be with being stupid, then it's gonna haunt me. I'm gonna run from it. Every time I think that that judgment might be laid upon me by somebody else or by myself or whatever, I'm gonna start reacting. So really, I want to be able to go, yeah, I'm stupid, right? We're all fucking stupid, aren't we? Excuse my language. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, you know, because we all do stupid things, right? Like and We're all ignorant of something. Yeah, we're all ignorant. Yeah. There's a variety of different ways in which I could be considered stupid by a whole array of different people, and I'm probably going to screw up a dozen more times before the day is out, so... Yes, I'm stupid. What a gloriously human thing it is to be stupid. So I'll often do stuff like this with clients. I actually get them to get into a sort of empowered ownership of the stuff that they might fear. Right? So on the one hand, I might empty it out. Like, there's nothing to it. Stupid is just an idea. But on the other hand, I might fill it back up again with this sort of sense of like, yeah, I'm stupid. I'm an idiot. What a gloriously human thing this is to be a, to be a fool, you know. Um, and so that people have this kind of like, actually, it's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of here. The thing that I've been running from, that I've been escaping from, I'm, I'm with it right now in a different way. So I'll often kind of pull these bits and pieces out. And, and this, for me, develops what I would often call a different ground of being. So all the little threats, all of the unconscious ideas, these things that people reacted to, it's just like, actually, it's just shit, it's just stuff, it's just flowing through. I'm okay. You know, with all of this stuff, I don't change, I'm okay. Um, and I have had people going, oh, but I wouldn't want to care, which is kind of like, you're talking about the stove. You know, and one distinction that I often bring in around this is like, when I, before COVID, when I had a lot more people come to my office, which is at home, people would have to cross this busy kind of intersection there. 
uh, and I would often say to them, I say, so you crossed the intersection on the way here? They say, yeah. yeah. I say, were you terrified? I don't even now. No. Were you afraid at all? No. That's a pretty busy intersection. A lot of cars there. How come you're here and you're alive? Is there an issue crossing that road? And they're like, no, there wasn't. It's just you didn't really need fear or worry or concern to like do what you needed to do to cross the road. And like no, and I, and I point out that, that that anxiety or fear or whatever does nothing to protect them. What actually protects them is their ability to coordinate in the moment. You know their their awareness, their resources are what protect them, not not their anxiety. So, and I will often point out that worrying is not caring. As well, that's uh, a really great distinction. Right, that's a great distinction. You know, like it's kind of what you were saying about the yeah. hospital. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So I point this out. Like, could you know, if you're really to care about somebody, means to be able to bring an attention to them and be aware of their needs and all of this. And like, can you really do that if you're caught up in worry? Right? Are you really attending um, with, a, with a higher level of quality and care to what you're doing if you're worried? And, and like, that's quite useful for people to get that distinction between worry and care, because I've heard that you probably heard that. Well, I don't want to not care. I don't want to be right. somebody who doesn't care. Right. Right. You know? so, so a lot of this is, to me, it's getting into the, into the recipe. How do they create this? What are they doing? Uh, and I, so I totally agree with Jurgen. It's these resistances, and that would probably come from the same place, but maybe approach it slightly differently on on uh, how to get people to be able to be with all that stuff that they've been pushing away or You mean or you wouldn't do the provocative things that he does with his clients? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know it can be a little bit provocative from time to time, but like, even then I think you're probably your method is a lot less provocative than it used to be. You've shifted your gears a bit. Yeah, yeah. gotten older. Yeah. <laughs> but also, also, I think your kind of framework and where you're working from and your set of understandings is maybe different from perhaps when you would do more of the provocative stuff. Yeah, yeah. But um, I it, think it, it depends on what you mean too by by provocative. Like, like I'll offer a quick. Like, I, I worked with a, a a woman who had fear of heights, mm. and there's this mountain in the city that I live in that I sometimes take these fear of height clients on journeys. You know, in the mountain. And uh, she had a, a leadership position, and, and, and was pretty like ambitious and competitive, and she, she liked being outdoors and stuff like that, and liked nature, and and she she broke down like 30 meters from the top, and was just crying, and you know why can't I do this, and Jurgen, you know to tell me why am I afraid, and she she was just like really really, and I I said to her well you know I look. You know, let, let, let's just call her Janice. I said, Janice, I, I kind of know, you know, but I, I don't know if you handled the truth, you know, to be honest with you. She looks at me and she goes, of course I've handled the truth. I said, well, you like nature, right? She says, yeah, I love nature. I said, do you, do you believe that nature contains wisdom? That, that in the presence of nature, you know, you can, you can often, you know, have discoveries and epiphanies about things. And she said, Right, I said. I said, it, 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 isn't the message obvious? She was like, "What do you mean?" I said, you, you're, "You're attempting to get to the top. This is clearly a metaphor." It says, "You don't belong at the top. You you kind of belong down here." I think your purpose, Janice, is is to make other people shine, and 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 to lift others. And I I think this is nature telling you that you don't really have it in you. You don't belong up there. That's what these feelings are. And she started, she started laughing, and she was kind of angry, and she was laughing, and she was like, "Fuck you!" Like, like she had this like, and she 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 stubbornly, you know, was kind of crying and laughing and and working up, and then and then she was like five minutes from or five meters from. The, I just grabbed her hand, I just pulled her, and and it was it, it was this this great moment of of victory, right? I, I, I think a major element in that was also me as the helper. You could say that I cared about her in that I was present and, and kind of did my job. And you but, were but, provocative in the but, sense but that you I, provoked her. I, I, I provoked her. I provoked her identity. I kind of tried to make it inconsistent with But I also kind of showed her that I'm, I'm not scared of these feelings. Like, in a sense of I'm not taking them seriously in the sense of the meaning anything. And I, I think, by all means, I, I, I think that we evolutionary have certain hunches 
that uh, if you were by the elevator later tonight and some dude shows up next to you and, and, and you suddenly get like a cold fear sensation, I trust that and no, not go into the elevator with, with that guy, right? Even if you don't have like a reason, I'm completely in for that or, or, or in for that, that we can have, you know, resonance in things not feeling or feeling right, you know, or not feeling right. Simultaneously, I, I think a lot of this is also about learning to not take our emotional states so seriously. Yeah. And, and, and not adding so much significance to them and, and looking for meaning and analyzing. And I'll, I'll give you a, an example of this with me. Like, I'm, I'm easily moved and touched by things. So my, my, my kids tease me. So we, we just went to this, like, Christmas movie thing, right? Which is kind of like, it's a very nice story. And I'm gonna start crying. Like, like my, 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 the tears are just, and the kids are just laughing. They, they, they think this is like, like embarrassing and like, you're so pathetic in the sense that look at him and I'll be like, oh fuck, there's this thing going on here. And then simultaneously, and this might be a personal failing in a sense, even though it's completely impersonal. I can be deeply moved by a fictional story, then I can turn on the TV look at like the thing in Israel and Gaza and intellectually process that and go yeah that's horrible but not really have a felt connection to it at all and and, and, and there was something about that that kind of gave me an epiphany of like this emotional system is kind of misguided in a sense like like it offers up a lot of like but there's no reason to necessarily take it that seriously. Right. And it, just as James uh, talked about, it's all about self. You know, and, and my lane Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so one, 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 one thing I often ask clients when they say, you know, I, I have these thoughts, you know, and I have these horrible thoughts or feelings, I say, are they your thoughts? And they always say yes. Mm. And one client with a sense of humor said, well, Jurgen, it's, it's me and you in the room. You know, it's like, so yeah, you got a point. But, 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 but look, I, I see clients from all over the place, Australia, New Zealand, United States. I've had hundreds of people tell me the exact same stories and thoughts, and they all claim ownership of them. Like, isn't that fascinating? And they go, well, yeah, I haven't quite thought about it that way. And I said, not, not only that, how old are you? And let's say they say 40. I said, right. You notice that these thoughts and feelings are way older than you? Like, do you read? Like, if you read books, you'll notice that people have these thoughts and feelings hundreds of years ago. And according to, like, linguists and anthropologists, you know, symbolic language might be 65 to 80,000 years. I have no idea how they figure those things out, you know. But tens of thousands of years. I said, is there any other aspect of your life where you go around with a straight face and claim credit for things that were around thousands of years before you were born. I'll say, imagine you and I were friends and we're into old cars and we're at this museum. There's this, this car from 1937, right? And I suddenly say, hey James, it's my, it's my design. I made that. You know, I, I was in the... Yeah, I invented the I, I, I invented the whole... He <laughs> goes, Jurgen, you were born in 1977. Like, like screw those pesky details. Like, like this is my... It go, Jurgen, you're, you're tripping. Like, this is not thinking well. Mm. Like, people don't do this with other stuff, but, but they take thoughts and emotions that are thousands of years old, and with a straight face, they claim, this is me, this is mine, I'm the architect behind it, and therefore it says something horrible about me. And that's why, regarding the whole kind of like Gaza thing and the not feeling anything, I have zero stress around that in the sense that it looks completely impersonal. You talked about that with the thoughts, and that, you know, you think those are your thoughts? I've totally used that with clients. Ever since you told me that, I totally use that with clients. And just the look on their face when they when you say that, they're like, okay, tell me more. What, are, what do you mean by that? And it's I, I go down that same path. I'm just like, it's like, this weird thing that we we tend to want to possess whatever we think is coming from within us like, or, or even the i need approval thoughts exactly like yeah. is that yours yeah. mm. like how, how personal is that mm. i remember you know, it, it's, it's like the most impersonal thought <laughs> yeah. ever yeah. and like you're claiming credit for it you know mm. like getting them to see the humor <laughs> and, and the absurdity and the the you know of, of some of this stuff 
Yeah. Is is uh, I think that's where the artist relies. I think provocation can be that mm. humor, it's, confusion, absurdity. Yeah, it's uh, such a slippery slope, though. Like when I, my daughter was born, I started getting these weird images and had weird dreams of like bad things happening to her. And there was a part of me that said, "Well, that means I'm, that must mean I'm a bad person for having even having these thoughts." And then I was like, yeah, "Whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa!" And I had to put a, like a stop to that because if you go start going down that path, then you start really believing, you start making generalizations based off these things. Like, yeah. no, yeah, there's probably some part of me that's really afraid of something happening to my little innocent daughter who can't do anything for herself. And if I start owning that and generalizing about that. Where did where could that take me? I don't even want to know where that could take me. So it was just I remember putting a stop to that and saying, no, these things are coming up, and that's just how it's happening. And it really says nothing about who I am or any generalizations I can make about me or anything in the world. Yeah, it's just just there. That's it. Yeah, I think that's like a really important thing, and that's in Ellis's work as well. If I remember rightly, that you know, not taking things and writing them into your self-image, you know, thinking that's just something about you are, you spilled the coffee, that means I'm an yeah. idiot because I spilled the coffee or, or something like that, is, you know, recognizing those stories of self, they are stories of self, and they really don't say that much about right. who we are, only something about who we think we are, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm often, you know, emphasizing that with clients, whatever you think you are, you're wrong. Like I use that kind of, I think Korzybski used to say, you know, use that line, you know, whatever you think you are, you're wrong, whatever you think it is, you're wrong, right? And, and kind of getting people into that. But it, getting people, I think one of the things that you do, and I do, and probably you do as well, I mean, I, I know Jürgen's work more than, um, than I know yours. I think this comes from kind of the NLP sensibilities or hypnosis sensibilities. Yeah. Is you're talking about doing psychoeducation. So I think that my approach could be characterized in a similar way. But I'm also aware that in that psychoeducation, what I'm looking to do is bring people into a certain experiential relationship with certain aspects of, of their own thinking, their own ideas, their own thoughts. And so there's a quality to that experiential relationship as well. So there is a, an attention to state and being. It's not just like, these are the ideas, get the ideas. Um, it's where, it's where, where the artistry comes in. Yeah. And I think also, since we're at a hypnosis conference, I think one of the strengths of well, hypnosis in quotation marks, or, or a hypnotic procedure with someone, mm. is kind of this, this attempt to help someone like embody a perspective. Mm. You know, yeah. In, yeah. in a sense. Like, like, can you not only have an, an, an intellectual idea about something, but, but can you have like a, a felt, embodied Absolutely. realization of like, oh shit, I just saw something new. I just had an epiphany. And and that artistic, James does this extremely well, you know, this this ability to, to use language and intent and be grounded and, and, and guide someone through a process mm. where they can slow things enough slow things down enough yeah. to kind of embody or, or, or have an experiential realization. Right, right. I, think I, I, have, I have a theory about this and I suspect that you'll be a, this will resonate with you. Like years ago I had this client, um, I can't remember what we, we were working on, but I recommended a book to him because I was just hearing how he was speaking and how he was talking about his world and everything. I'm like, man, this book's going to like blow this guy's mind. It's going to completely shift his reality. I can't even remember what the book was, but I'm like, read this book, I said to this guy. And he's like, oh yeah, I read that, great book. And I was like, what? You read that book? Because it didn't make sense that he, if he understood this book or got anything from this book, it didn't, understand, it didn't make sense how he was now making sense of the world. And I was like, that's weird. Like, how could he have read this book and say it's a great book and yet not get some of the really important stuff in this book? And I had this kind of, I really thought about this, I had this realization that when I read, I try on what's being offered. Like, I don't just kind of like, well, that's an interesting idea. I'm like, how would it be if, if that were true? How would I be if that were true? It's like, well, you're like, you're using your NLP Right, model, right. And you know? it, maybe it, this comes from an NLP, or maybe it comes from like being trained in that sort of way of doing things. But I kind of really get into it and really try on that reality. And I, I recognize, and it kind of makes me a slow reader sometimes. Like, I'm not the fastest reader around this, because I'm really like, I want to get this, and I want to get into this. How does this impact me? And I think, I think it's a very transformative way to read. 
right? a lot of people don't do this they're not like trying on the ideas they're just sort of like yeah it's interesting so one thing like it's a little bugbear of mine it kills me if i'm working with a client they go oh, that's food for thought <laughs> no no that's not it. yeah you know i know i've not brought right. them to that right. place if you see what i mean um but I think once you're aware of that as a, as a facilitator of change, you've got some acuity for that, whether somebody's really trying on what you're offering, whether they're really inside of it, that is such a valuable thing to have. And I always say when I'm teaching people to facilitate change work, stop trying to get through the process and get into each moment of the process and get the client into each moment of it. Because so many people, when they, they, they might learn, like, well, here's a protocol for dealing with anxiety. And then they're trying to get through the protocol to the end of it. Because they go, right, when I get to the end of it, then the change will happen. And it's like, well, everything happens in the moment, in how that moment comes alive. And I think that's something that, like, when you're doing your psychoeducation, you're not just doing, it's not an informational right, psychoeducation. Right, right, right. It's an invitation. Experiential. Yeah, uh, into different experiences. And, and there's something else you're pointing to as well, which I think is so essential and, and easily forgotten in change work. It's like, it's less what you say, it's what the client hears. Mm. It's how they make meaning out of something. The meaning of a communication is the response it gets. Right, right, right. Like I remember the, one of the first time I went to see a movie with, with, with my wife. This was before the days of the take of breathing. I apparently, yeah, we, we saw this thing that was kind of, I can't even remember what it was, but, but kind of creepy, right? Mm. Some sort of scene. And I, and I had gotten into a mode of heavy breathing. And she rises up like, like offended and stunned and just like, for heaven's sake, is this turning you on? And she's so offended that she leaves the cinema. Everyone's kind of looking at me, right? And I'm, and I'm, and I'm sitting there like, 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 I was not turned on at the least. Like, but so I, I, I got curious because I was like, what, what the hell? Just like something's lost in translation here. Yeah. I went out there and I was like, what the hell? Like, how did you? Well, you were breathing heavy. Say like, right, I may have been, and that means it's like oh, so so, so that that's what she heard, like that's what she made out of that, right? No, that was not my experience, not my experience at all, and, yeah. and that, that's why I, I, you know, in, in terms of books, there's this saying like the the author starts the book, but it's the reader who finishes it. Yeah. It's, it's whatever they hear from the book is going to be their experience. Right, right, and I know for myself when I'm reading. I read with the intention of getting something that's going to enhance my life. You know, that's going to give me a, a different way of seeing things, which is generative. So I'm kind of sorting for that and trying stuff on. And like some of it might be like, yeah, not so much that, but mm, this is really interesting. You know. And just for the viewers out there, uh, what Jurgen does with his psychoeducation, he's not training psychos. That's not, that's not what psycho education. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think, guys? Did we crush anxiety in this past, uh, what is it, an hour and a half? Hopefully now? not. We, we, we hopefully embraced and explored and yeah. saw something new. And maybe transcended. Ma maybe transcended. <laughs> maybe transcended. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Any last thoughts before we close this out? No, really. I would just say to anybody watching this, if they are experiencing what they might call anxiety and they thought it's kind of holding them back, um, it is utterly, like I often say to clients, I say there's, there's something I know about you that you probably don't know about yourself. And I'm like, well, what's that? And I see this thing you're experiencing, you can totally transcend this, right? And I mean that absolutely sincerely. And, and they often don't know it themselves. They wonder, is it possible to get beyond this? And then I'll say to them, like, there's a reason that I know this. And it isn't because I know you really well, but I do know that you're a human being. Right, and, and like some people out there think, well, I'm, and I often say, can I use stronger language on this or would you prefer that? Well, he's already done it. Oh, so he's, he's already done it. <laughs> I often say, and I know you probably think you're some special case of fucked up, right? Uh, and everybody goes, yes. They all think they're a special case of fucked up, but nobody is a special case of fucked up. We've all got basically the same kind of neurological. Yeah. We're all normal cases of fucked up. Yeah, like every like Stephen Gilligan often says, you're an incurable deviant. And like we're all, you know, we're all going to be gloriously imperfect in a variety of different ways for the rest of our days. But whatever it is that you want to transcend, there is a way through that. Um, 
So like if anyone's out there and they're going, oh, this anxiety is really screwing me up. I know what that's like and you can totally transcend it. There's always a way out. There's all, we're not only meaning-making machines, which can get in our way sometimes, we're learning machines. Yeah. So we can learn our way out of this. Yeah. We learned our way into it, we can make it right. Way. Powerfully adaptive. That's another diagnosis I give people regularly is powerfully adaptive mammalian brain. You know? Well, before this gets too noisy because people are coming in here, we are in the middle of a, a convention. We should probably close this out. I just want to thank you both so much for taking the thank time you. to do this. I know you, there was other things you could have been doing during this time, but uh, I'm really glad you showed up to do this. And I always enjoy really having these conversations with both of you. Thank you. Right. Thank, thank you. you.